I do next generation sequencing on the gut microbiome in almost all my patients or the vast majority of my patients. So I'm able to see metagenomic testing. So at that cellular level, molecular level, like what's going on in the gut microbiome? Who's taking up real estate in the gut? What good guys are there? What bad guys are there? Are they in balance or not? Do they have leaky gut based on, you know, what we're seeing? And then from a structural standpoint, and then also from a functional standpoint, what's going on in that gut? So I can tell you from diet, from what people choose, it does significantly or markedly affect the balance of the gut microbiome and who's living there and what species are taking up space there and what's not based on how they've chosen to eat. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health. And along the way, we have conversations with thought leaders about research-backed information so you can take your health into your own hands. This is a whole new level. When it comes to the cross-section of gastrointestinal issues as they relate to metabolic health, well, there's no one greater to talk to than Dr. Robin Rose. Dr. Rose is founder and CEO of Terrain Health, where she works with her patients to identify the root cause of many different GI conditions. And so she and I sat down and we talked about this cross-section of GI as it relates to metabolic health. We talked about things like diet, does that come into play when thinking through different instances of GI conditions that can occur from people consuming certain diets? It's not to say that one diet might lead to a higher rate than another, but it's something to be aware of when we think about the food, the inputs, the lifestyle choices we make, and how does that pertain to the downstream outcomes? We talked about the fertility epidemic as it relates to GI issues. And mostly, we talked about how people can think about mitigating some of these conditions as they work through different lifestyle factors and adapt the changes in their behavior needed to live healthier, happier lives. Anyway, no need to wait. Here's a conversation with Dr. Rose. A couple of things that would be interesting to cover as a cross-section of metabolic health as it relates to gastrointestinal juice, PCOS, mm -hmm. fertility, mm -hmm. and then even some things related to, I mean, it's parallel to metabolic health, but more along the lines of diet as it relates to gastrointestinal issues and some of the things that might be misconceptions where people can nod their heads and agree, avoid sugar, avoid highly processed foods. But I think there's a misconception of sometimes people go really hard in one direction towards a certain type of diet if they make lifestyle changes and they think they're eating healthy by still eating whole foods. But if you're eliminating, let's say, not to label a specific diet, but carnivore or keto or some of these diets where the idea is to eliminate some of the micro micronutrients you'll get from plants. Like the macronutrient that you're sort of doubling down. Yeah. Be interesting to touch on all of those things as they relate to GI issues. So I know we kick it off with the scale, the number of people that are affected by digestive diseases. According to the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, uh, 60 to 70 million people are affected by some type of digestive disease. So 
Don't quote me on that. That was a quote from you, I believe, in an article. So we'll, we will run with it is a large scale, but it's a large, large number of people affected by these diseases. And what are um, some of the common types of GI issues that people would face or people might have heard of? So obviously some of the most common, let's start above and then we'll move our way down. So starting up above, <laughs> Uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, you know, people that present with heartburn, epigastric pain, you know, heart, like throat burning, feeling like something stuck in their throat, that sort of thing. Then there's dyspepsia or functional dyspepsia, which is sort of like a global term for upper GI discomfort. You know, people that have bloating, feeling full, fast, nausea, things of that nature, peptic ulcer disease, SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, Irritable bowel syndrome, which could be of the constipation predominant type, the diarrhea predominant type, or the mixed type where you're alternating between both of those. Now, remember, irritable bowel syndrome, you have to really constitutes, you know, both the modification of the bowel habit or bowel movement plus abdominal pain and or bloating. Now, there's people get that confused with or it sort of is a spectrum, but chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea, because the people have chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea, they really lack the abdominal pain component. That's what makes that person fit into the category of irritable bowel syndrome when you have the abdominal pain piece of it. And then there's inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, microscopic colitis, collagen, you know, there's so many different gastrointestinal illnesses and problems. Clearly, we could name probably 100 or more. When thinking through diet, it's apparent that as things become faster and more convenient and we start to strip away a lot of the nutrients, we strip away the fiber, we strip away what we need in our diet to promote a healthy microbiome. What is it that has caused so many people to, uh, to start to realize, you hear of people saying, oh, I've got IBS or they have maybe some other GI issue that, that they are living with and trying to mitigate in, in the best respect. Is it food? Is it, is it other lifestyle factors that contribute to some of these diseases being more prevalent in maybe in, we'll call it the social fabric of conversation? Yeah. So first of all, when you talk about the four pillars of health, sleep, movement, nutrition, stress management, or mindfulness, all of those things contribute to dysbiosis, um, an imbalance of the gut microbiome, leaky gut, so on and so forth, and then leading to any of these manifestations, right? These different disease manifestations that we just talked about. So clearly the standard American diet doesn't help the situation and the way we eat, the way the food is processed and leaning, you know, moving away from a whole food plant-centric diet and to one of, right, processed foods very heavily meat-based and obviously people aren't, aren't eating meat that's grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised, any, you know, things of that nature, you know, regenerative farming, we can get into that too. And that combined with lack of sleep, that combined with lack of movement and stress and cortisol through the roof, driving glucose, you know, insulin resistance, so on and so forth, that all plays a role in the health of the gut microbiome and our overall health. And how many microorganisms are typically in a person's gut? So there's trillions, hundreds of trillions of organisms. Uh, 
any, you know, mostly bacteria, but fungi, viruses, parasites, these other organisms called eukaryotes or methanogen-producing organism. There's so many different things. Uh, candida, I think I said fungus, all these things. But the vast majority are these bacteria, right? And you have all these organisms, but, you know, there's something called microbial diversity. And the idea is, is you want to have as much diversity as possible because that then equates to a healthier gut microbiome and overall health. But there's only really about 250 different identifiable species that we know or that we, we know that we know about or that have been researched. And so really having as close to, you know, those 250 different species in your gut is is something to strive for. Many people <laughs> fall very short of it, especially in the United States because of our lifestyle and how we eat. But that's really what, you know, you want to, you know, try to get as close to as possible. Yeah, it, it sounds analogous to the idea of regenerative farming, where what makes for a great ecosystem is the idea of diversity. And so without diversity, we know what happens with, to digress for a sec, into, you get into monoculture and everything gets stripped away and you go, well, where, where are all the microorganisms? Where are all the things that make the whole ecosystem rich? And if people are stripping away mm -hmm. some of these microorganisms from their microbiome, then over time, it's easy to see how it leads to some of these issues. Absolutely. And it's so, I don't know why this just popped in my head, but, you know, another thing, you know, just to piggyback off of what you said, you know, over the last century through urbanization, deforestation, uh, industrialization, we've lost contact with nature. And so there's, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of organisms you know, from unmined soil or earth that we used to be in contact with on a daily basis that we used to breathe in, that we used to swallow, that we would absorb through our skin when we were walking barefoot in the forest, right? And so on and so forth. And those organisms are so super important for our health. And I actually do use this one product, it's very interesting, called RhizoHealth, that comes from unmined soil. And it's mm -hmm. unbelievable the array of um, different things that it helps treat and helps people with because of these missing groupings of organisms from the unmined soil that we don't have contact with. And that is likely contributing to disease. And these organisms have been shown, you know, we're talking, you know, we'll touch on metabolism and metabolic health, but they do play a big role in insulin glucose metabolism and regulation. Yeah, it's super interesting because we, in a society of efficiency, we end up stripping away some of the things that give us long-term benefit in so many aspects mm -hmm. of life. And we're, so we're, it's this trade-off of convenience and efficiency and um, maybe living in a world that we want to be faster and faster when really what we have to do is slow down to think about what we're doing and why. One of the things that you touch on frequently is this idea of fertility as it relates to gastrointestinal issues. And you, we know there's a fertility epidemic that's apparent. It is happening across men and women. And um, I think especially with, let's say, men in particular, that was always the, well, it's, it's an issue with the female fertility and it doesn't have to do with the men. And as we start to look at things like uh, sperm count, sperm quality, all of these things decreasing over time. And you're going, no, no, this is a both 
issue. Now let's address it. And so we'd love to get into some of the ideas of what causes this fertility epidemic that we're in and then Mm -hmm. get into some of the ties to uh, GI issues. So we um, have partnered with, and I'll I'll give you the whole background because it's so super interesting, with this company, this biotechnology company called Microgenesis. And the woman that started it, she's dedicated literally two decades of her life to cracking the code on infertility. And what she has found is that it stems from dysbiosis or an imbalance of the gut microbiome and a problem with the gut microbiome, okay? And the way she was able to figure this out is through what's called microRNAs technology, okay? So microRNAs are these like sort of small non-coding RNA molecules, okay? And they play a really important role in regulating gene expression, all right? And then what happens is, is they can regulate cellular metabolism by targeting certain uh, metabolic enzymes and multiple signaling pathways. And then the microRNAs, you know, themselves can regulate the cell metabolism by modulating the expression of different proteins, okay, involved in gut integrity, sort of like the tight junctions in your gut, right? And also immune cells um, and then the secretion of different inflammatory related mediators, okay? The microRNA, so you're like, oh, how does that relate to like infertility, right? So basically the microRNAs can affect gene expression locally, right, in the GI tract, right? So they're expressed by particularly macrophages, which is a type of immune cell, okay? And so locally they can exert their effect, all right? But they can sort of behave, they are like exosomes, all right? And they're secreted and transported by these extracellular carriers to different targets in the human body and different organs, okay? So whatever, so basically whatever's happening in the gut microbiome is then translated or is mirrored in the other biomes in your body. So when we're talking about fertility in women, right, we're talking about the vaginal biome in particular, okay? So, for example, the microRNAs can be secreted in the gut, right, in response to changes in that gut microbiome, and then they travel to the reproductive tissue, and then they affect the function and integrity there of that organ. So through this technology, you know, that's how it's tested, basically. That's how we figure out what's going on. But we, she has been able to figure out that over all these years that the infertility, the problem that the woman is having is basically stemming from the health and balance of the gut microbiome. Infertility is just a symptom of something else. And so when you test these women, because we do a vaginal biome swab, plus we layer it with specific biomarkers, right? Because you can imagine there's specific algorithms that are involved to figure out what what this woman is expressing, okay? So to back up, she figured out or so far has identified 64 different phenotypes, phenotypes meaning expressions, different expressions of the gut microbiome or variations in the gut microbiome that are occurring or found in these women that have infertility. Like, so let's say you're phenotype 34, I don't know. It's a symptom of something else smoldering, right? And a lot of these women have a smoldering autoimmune process, a smoldering, you know, Hashimoto's, 
uh, PCOS that maybe has never been diagnosed, endometriosis, recurrent vaginitis. Um, you know, the list goes on and on with a million other different things that these women can have. And whether they've expressed it or not, you know, can remain to be seen. Like some of the women might be like, I, I do have a history. You know, I was recently diagnosed with Hashimoto's or I have X, Y, and Z. And that's because they are one of these phenotypes, right? Or if the woman hasn't maybe expressed it yet, we're catching them so that we, they don't express it. So the idea is to restore health and balance to the gut microbiome through a specific program, right? So that then these women can get pregnant successfully. Interesting. It, it, it's fascinating because it sounds like everything is a step upstream to get to that root cause of exactly what the underlying issue is, mm -hmm. as opposed to giving it the blanket statement of, well, somebody has challenges with fertility, right? There's so many causes. There's so many reasons that that can happen. Right. Well, what happened? So a lot of these women, you know, obviously they've been worked up, right? Their partner has been worked up, you know, the sperm, whether it's fine or not, or maybe they have low sperm count. Um, or they've definitely been ruled out to have a structural or an anatomical issue. And so they go into this sort of, oh, it's like infertility of unknown etiology or, you know, it's, uh, you know, undetermined. If they don't know why. But the reason why is because of what we're talking about. So all of those women that have been worked up and don't have any, they fall into this category where this technology, both the medical testing and the interventional treatment, which is all natural, by the way, will really help them. You know, there's two clinical trials. They've studied over 300 women, both in the United States and in the EU and South America. And she shows a 75% success rate in, in conception. So just to give you a little bit of context around this, if you look at the CDC data around this, a healthy young woman, so like really under 35 years old, um, that undergoes in, in vitro fertilization has a 29.5% chance of getting pregnant. So she takes that to 75% with the understanding what the phenotype is and then treating them. And the treatment is only 10 weeks. And she studied both Women that had refractory, they on average, they went through 4.2 cycles of IVF and never got pregnant. Some of them um, over 10 years couldn't get pregnant. And she, she got, like, again, she showed in the study a 75% success rate in conception. When she repeated the study, because the original study with the refractory IVF patients, that was in Spain and South America. The repeat study was done in American women, and they, on average, uh, I think time span for pregnant for them trying to get pregnant was three years. On average, they were they were taking three years to get pregnant, and I think some of them had dabbles with hormone, you know, therapy in the context of you know fertil in infertility. And um, she again brought she re reproduced the results and showed seventy five percent success rate in conception, in conceiving. That's that is such a wild outcome to think about because one is very much addressing the downstream goal. The downstream goal being, I'd like to get pregnant, I'd like to have a family, but the upstream root cause of everything is still not addressed. And over time, we know with some of these chronic conditions, they compound, they just get worse right. and worse and worse. And so that, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate that 
those can be left in the dark or they can be left behind because you do achieve the one goal, but in the end, you're still not at optimal health. Correct. So that's why I was so taken by what she has done and and how she has done it. And as a woman myself, I mean, I thankfully never had issues with fertility, but I had so many friends and I watched them struggle and go through it. And besides the financial burden, right? And not even that, but the mental, physical and emotional, you know, trauma from it and what they go through to get the baby. And it's only just band-aiding the situation, right? You're not getting to the root cause. And why I love this so much is that we are helping these women become healthier people. Like we are saving them from either going on to express that condition or underlying disease, right? Or we're helping them regress or reverse what they have going on currently. And not only are they going to get have a baby and have a healthier baby, but they're going to be healthier, right? And when a woman is trying to get pregnant, they don't care about anything. They could care less about their health. Like they just want to get pregnant. And I totally get that on every level. But why this is so powerful is that we are changing the trajectory of their health, of their of their health. And, mm-hmm. and she's even starting to show, and this will, this is going to come out soon and it's being studied right now, but the babies of the women that go through these programs versus women that go through traditional IVF, they have much healthier microbiomes and they're much healthier. And so you're winning on all fronts, <laughs> you know, like you're really, it's a very powerful uh, tool in our toolkit when it comes to chronic disease and infertility in general. Do you have any insight around IVF? So IVF with women who might not be metabolically healthy or might have some underlying um, GI conditions, they get pregnant mm-hmm. versus women that are going upstream, taking care of the root cause. Do you have any uh, insight as to the success rate? So assume somebody gets pregnant through IVF, but maybe they have an unhealthy pregnancy yeah. or uh, unfortunately if they have a mes- miscarriage. I mean, disheartening in every respect yes. to go down some of these paths. But do you have any insight into the long-term outcome of IVF being unhealthy and the health of the baby versus uh, going upstream, taking care of root cause, and then having a higher success rate in getting pregnant and having a healthy pregnancy? So, so interesting. That's what we're trying to unravel right now. We are looking at that data. That's what that's what we are going to show, you know, in the months or the next like few years to come. But anecdotally, and I guess some of it's maybe been studied, but, you know, these women that go through multiple rounds of of IVF and the exposure to hormones and repeated exposure and so on and so forth. What does that do, right? What does that do to their health long-term? Are they at higher risk for certain uh, cancers, right? Um, are they destroying their gut microbiome and really causing, you know, a dysregulated, um, you know, gut immune access from all of that um, exposure that they've had? What, you know, are gut, that gut metabolic access? Um, and so, and right, and what do the babies look like? And so we're that we're in the middle of studying right now, like looking at the babies and and showing what the what the gut microbiome looks like and how it's a much healthier gut microbiome likely in the babies that are being born by going after root cause and the woman really addressing her underlying health and really restoring health and balance to the gut microbiome, lowering these inflammatory biomarkers versus a woman that goes through the traditional conventional way of doing things. I want to qualify one thing. 
the women that need IVF, right, or an embryo transfer, so on and so forth, we put them through the program, right, because a lot of these women still need to do that. But the point is, is instead of them having this 29.5% or lower or chance of getting pregnant, it markedly or significantly increases their chance of conceiving, right? And on top of that, you lowered their exposure, right? Because maybe, you know, you've brought them from maybe having to go three or four times through it to only one time or two times, right? And again, you've addressed, like you said, the root cause or the underlying issue um, of that woman's health of like what's driving some of the problems contributing to the infertility. Are are there any instances or any data that you can point to as far as the differences in outcomes for gestational diabetes as it relates to somebody who goes through IVF? No. And you know, I'm going to look, I'm going to look that up. That's so fascinating. I never, that's such a great, but I will say we do use insulin as a biomarker um, and we watch it fall and come down. Insulin is one of the biomarkers we use and we repeat the labs at day 30, 60 and so forth. And that biomarker tremendously and markedly falls in the women that go through this program, especially in the context of the women that have diagnosed or undiagnosed PCOS, right? That's a huge driver of why they can't get pregnant. And so when they go through this intervention, right, of the certain nutraceuticals, the specific probiotic strains that they have to be re-inoculated with and the specific nutrition plan that they're going to do, that that significantly plays a role, right, in that whole gut metabolic access and that insulin really comes down nicely. So it's that I can that I can speak to um, from a clinical perspective because we see it all the time. It's wild because there's this misconception, I think, that exists in society that when women are pregnant, the thought, oh, well, I'm going to eat what I want and I can eat anything. And I have, if somebody is experiencing morning sickness, I think the tale we tell ourselves is go grab some crackers or eat a bagel, eat something high, high carb, high sugar. And what does it do? It puts you on this glucose roller coaster that over time you're developing more insulin resistance. And especially if you're already starting off in a place where you maybe had mild insulin resistance, the long-term outcome of that is not great. And so getting to a place where you go into wanting, uh, wanting to be in a state of family planning, or mm-hmm. if you are, uh, if you are getting pregnant, having good baseline metabolic health, overall, good baseline of insulin, good baseline of uh, glucose variability and control, it's going to put you in a better long term position to have a healthy pregnancy and overall health for yourself. That was so well said. And I will you know, I, I will add this too. My partner, she's a women's health expert. She's been doing ob for over 20 years. And she really does a lot with this program, you know, that we're talking about. And she, she says every day how she, oh my God, that this is just the most amazing thing. She would never think of not putting a woman who's having difficulty, not through this program because you know, in her experience, especially with the women that have to go through IUI, IVF, so on and so forth, they're considered high risk. They have to be followed so closely. And yeah, they're sitting on pins and needles hoping for not like for this woman not to have a miscarriage and not to have a complication. And she says that this just adds this layer of protection and this, this feeling of, you know, wow, like I feel good and I'm not so worried 
that this woman's going to maybe miscarry or going to have some mishap during the pregnancy because she knows that we really address these underlying issues and she sees these biomarkers that have trended down so beautifully and it makes a huge difference, right? And likely the mom's help and then the baby's help and how she carries. So it's just so funny that you brought that up because she because she says it all the time, how it just makes such a difference. And we're starting to see what a difference it makes too. So it's really exciting. When thinking about things like PCOS, so we know uh, women who have PCOS and are interested in getting pregnant and they, mm-hmm. they start experiencing some of the challenges with getting pregnant. What are some of the closest uh, gastrointestinal conditions that are associated, knowing that correlation does not equal causation, but that you see in your practice, um, what are some of the most common issues that women with PCOS might have from a GI perspective? Yeah, so they have a lot of issues with, you know, they could have chronic, mostly chronic constipation more than diarrhea, but they could have both tons of bloating, you know, discomfort, things of that nature. They all, it's interesting in this platform that I'm talking about too, there are two different types of PCOS, two different phenotypes. One of the phenotypes is a PCOS that stems from gut dysbiosis and leaky gut. And the other one that's more of an insulin resistant um, PCOS. So that's fascinating too, because they get treated a little bit differently. So I do put a lot of my PCOS patients, like even if they're not ready, to conceive or they're not even in their 20s, I'll put them through this because it regresses and reverses the PCOS. It really solves the problem in a lot of cases because, again, it's this metabolic disturbance that's being driven from the health of the gut microbiome. A good distinction to make, too, because I think when we, specifically we as a company, talk a lot about PCOS, mm-hmm. um, whether it's through the blog, it's mm-hmm. through podcast, mm-hmm. we're talking about it as it relates to metabolic health insulin resistance. And so having that distinction between there are two different paths that um, women can experience PCOS, maybe there's overlap. When starting to dig into your research and the work that you're doing, it was very eye-opening for myself saying I wasn't aware that that was the case. Mm-hmm. But learning about that is, uh, it's interesting because then you you can understand different directions or different approaches that can be or need to be taken in order to mitigate some of these conditions. Correct. And I, and again, like sadly, these women with PCOS, God, if you just go after the gut and restore health and balance to that gut microbiome and get them on the right things to really restore health to the intestinal barrier mucosa and to really get these tight junctions, you know, nice and tight again and, you know, not letting anything leak out and cause this sort of chronic low-grade inflammation that then stimulates, ish, you know, problems with insulin glucose dysregulation and things like that. Like it, re- it's really so powerful. And I think that's like a big piece that's missed in these women. And it's so easily fixed, right? It really is. But unfortunately, not everybody's, you know, on the same page. Well, we, we all can do certain things when it comes to lifestyle, men and women, mm-hmm. um, that being sleep, that being, you touched on uh, many of the pillars at, at the beginning of the conversation, but Uh, sleep, diet, exercise. When thinking about diet specifically, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what are some of the misconceptions that that you've come across? Um, We try very hard not to be prescriptive saying, go eat this or go eat that from a diet perspective. What we, we are prescriptive with is avoid highly processed food, avoid sugar, giving people the foundation of knowledge so that they can 
make their own decisions as to what they consume. But with the, what do we call them? The diet wars, Mm -hmm. maybe, where you have the ketogenic group arguing against the carnivore group, arguing against the plant-based group. Are there any specific diets that you've seen that lead to more GI conditions than others? And the reason I ask is the ketogenic diet focuses so highly on fat and protein, Mm -hmm. carnivore, meat only, um, stripping away Mm -hmm. some of the micronutrients we get from things like plants. What are some of the diets that you've seen that have higher instances of different GI issues? Okay, so first before I answer that, I want to say I don't discriminate. I don't discriminate against any macronutrient. (laughs) I think you should have everything on board. That's first of all. But second of all, um, let's like dive into what you're asking me. So I do next generation sequencing on the gut microbiome in almost, you know, the, in almost all my patients or the vast majority of my patients. So I'm able to see at a metagenomic, like it's metagenomic testing. So at that cellular level, molecular level, like what's going on in the gut microbiome? Who's taking up real estate in the gut? What good guys are there? What bad guys are there? Are they in balance or not, right? What um, do they have leaky gut based on, you know, what we're seeing from a structural standpoint? And then also from a functional standpoint, like what's going on in that gut, right? Are they making their short-chain fatty acids? Are they producing too much ammonia, methane, hydrogen sulfide, so on and so forth, okay? So I can tell you from diet, from what people choose, it does significantly or markedly affect the balance, right, of the gut microbiome and who's living there and what species are taking up space there and what's not based on how they've chosen to eat, right? So let's talk about some examples, all right? Let's talk about carnivore, for example, right? So I've had patients argue with me, and that's fine because I'm a t- it's a team, we're a partnership, that they feel the best on a carnivore diet. And I'm fine with that, right? The problem is, is what's going on at a cellular or biochemical level with these people, right? And the vast majority of them, when I look, because we do extensive testing when we see our patients, we do probably 150 analytes or more. Like when you go to your primary care doctor for your, you know, yearly physical, they're checking like 42 analytes. And then they're like, oh, you're with a normal image, which is, which is nonsense, right? So we are looking at trends and we are looking at all of these different biomarkers, like especially I do a deep, deep dive into cardiovascular biomarkers and do, you know, the Cardio IQ, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo, they have this amazing panel that shows everything. So we're looking at not just the number, not like the LDL number or the HDL number in your triglycerides, but we're looking at what's called LDL particle size and number. And we're looking at your apple lipoprotein, like ApoB and LipoA. And then we're looking at HSCRP, LPPLA2, oxidized LDL, uh, myeloperoxidase, all these different And I will tell you that the people that are strictly carnivore, they have a ton of cardiovascular inflammation, many of them, okay? I'm not saying they have insulin glucose dysregulate, but they do have cardiovascular inflammation. And the problem is, and, and again, remember your HDL and your LDL are immunomodulators, meaning that when your immune system is negatively impacted, right, your HDL and your LDL will also be impacted, okay? So it's not just like, oh, it's my genes, it's my genes. No, 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 Like, it's not just your genes. It's likely coming from your gut, okay? 
the bacteria in your gut, right, they prefer like their main source of energy comes from what's called sacrolytic fermentation. Sacrolytic fermentation, sac, like SC, the root of that word is sugar. But I'm not talking about like refined, you know, simple sugars. I'm talking about complex carbohydrates, high fiber foods, resistant starches. Like that's what the gut microbiome prefer, right? Or those bacteria prefer so that then they can use that. They utilize that. That's the energy source that they use to produce all these amazing postbiotics or metabolites in our body, such as short-chain fatty acids, right? So you need that, right? Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, the bacteria developed a secondary source of energy, you know, utilization, which was proteolytic fermentation or coming from, right, protein. Because if you think about it way back, in way, way back when we were like hunter-gatherers, right? Like mostly you were picking like off whatever you, like it was all the different like colors of the rainbow and the plants and the this and that that you were just picking off as you went, right? Like, and you were eating that, you were foraging, right? And it wasn't unless there was drought and so on and so forth, that's probably when gaming sort of like started. And then you had to develop a way to break down animal protein, which is this proteolytic fermentation. The problem with that is that when you have too much of that, then you're making these byproducts of protein metabolism that can be very, very toxic to the gut lining and the gut microbiome in general. That's the issue. So not that we don't need some of these products of protein degradation or, you know, byproducts of protein metabolism. We do, but it's sort of like I always say to my patients, it's the Goldilocks rule. It's the just, you want just the right amount of everything. And what happens in a lot of these patients is that's off the charts, okay? And that's not good because that's causing a lot of issues with leaky gut, you know, having this chronic low-grade, you know, chronic low-grade inflammation stemming from the gut, dinging the immune system, ding, ding, you know? And then it's like, and then that in turn is causing all these issues, right? With uh, cardiovascular inflammation, metabolic issues, so on and so forth. So yeah, I see it. I see it. And then I, I'll let you talk and then I'll talk about ketogenic because you might have a question or two, but then I'll go into the keto thing. <laughs> I'd lo- love to hear about uh, keto, but it's the idea that I think this is the, the human tendency is the brain on overdrive, mm-hmm. right? So uh, assume that somebody wants to make, we'll, we'll call it like the January 1st best intentions, yeah. right? Some arbitrary point in time that we make a decision. Mm-hmm. Life is made up mm-hmm. of behaviors and decisions and how how much willpower we have to stick to them. But we say, I'm I'm ready to make that meaningful change, whatever the end state right. of the goal is. And so that meaningful change might be uh, removing all processed food, avoiding sugar altogether. And I'm going to go and eat keto or I'm going to go and eat carnivore or paleo, na- name some diet. Mm-hmm. And the overdrive function comes in where we we almost game it ourselves. And so we will consume way too much of the one thing that is no longer good. The best intentions <laughs> no longer come through because we have pushed ourselves so far over the edge that we're actually maybe not doing worse. There's no one's going to argue that eating whole foods is worse than eating sugar and highly mm-hmm. processed carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. But in general, the idea of too much of anything, like right. it is the old adage, too much of anything is never good. And so it's about finding that balance. But very curious to hear uh, hear more about what you've seen with keto as it relates to GI issues. 
So when I do all of those advanced biomarkers that I was talking about, we check what's called an APOE genotype, right? The APOE genotype. And that genotype, you know, they say, you know, it's, it's not only for cardiovascular risk, but for Alzheimer's dementia risk. And so when you inherit your alleles or your genes, right, mom and dad will give you a two, three, or four, right? It's a two, three, or four. So you get one from mom, one from dad. So you can be any combination. You can be a two, three, a three, three, a four, four, three, four, two, four, any of those combinations, okay? The most common genotype is a three, three. You get a three from mom, a three from dad, okay? About 25% of the population is a three, four. And then a lower percentage are four fours. The issue is with the four, the four allele, okay? So if you have one four, so let's say you're a three four, right? You're, you have basically a three times higher risk of Alzheimer's dementia or cardiovascular disease. If you're a four four, you have a 12 times higher risk. But here's the thing. You can tone the gene down, right? So you, be based on epigenetics, right? And Exactly. So what we're eating, how we interact and adapt to the world around us, like how we are epigenetically programmed or what we're doing from an epigenetic standpoint can tone the gene, turn the gene on or tone it up, amplify it or tone it down. So we have the power to basically switch the gene like, I don't like to say off, but really tone it down. Okay. And keto. So this is where I'm coming into keto, which is so fascinating really patients, well, first of all, patients that are 4-4 should never do a ketogenic diet. I would say almost never because of what, you, and I'll explain to you why. And 3-4 should be pretty cautious, right? So if I have someone with a 3-3, a 2-3, I feel fine if they want to go ketogenic. But the problem is, is those people have issues with the fat and fat metabolism. It's for that reason that the gene gets weak, okay? And the accumulation of this and what's happening in the body is what basically turns that on and drives that risk up, okay? So those patients can't have, like, we restrict them to about 30 grams of, like, you know, the well, specifically bad fats. And the people, people in society don't really understand the difference between, they think a lot of good fats are good, they're really not. Like, all the seed oils and so on and so forth, they don't get that. And people are consuming mega amounts of those, especially when they're on keto, Right. So I try to use some of the precision healthcare that we do to tailor their nutritional needs, right, to that profile. And it's so amazing, again, from a clinical perspective, when I speak to my patients that never knew they were a 4434, they'll say to me nine out of 10 times, oh my God, I did a ketogenic diet and I felt terrible. And the reason why they felt terrible was because they couldn't handle that high fat content and their body was telling them something. So it's like intuitively they knew that something was off. And what's so what's so interesting about this too is that's why I love precision medicine in so many different ways because here you have a ginormous percentage of the population being like, I'm going to do keto. And they're likely doing more damage than good, right? So that's why I totally believe in balance and moderation and all that stuff. But ketogenic is powerful for a lot of different things, a lot of different cancer, you know, but I believe for short term, right, to treat that issue or problem, right? Not long term, but any of these bad diets, you know. And, and so if somebody was, assume somebody was a 4-4, mm -hmm. would that lead to 
downstream, long-term, more instances of things like gallstones? Oh, I'm not really sure. It's a good question that I'm not sure about. That's a good question, maybe. But no, but gallstones is different. It's like bile. It's different. It's not just the fat in general. It's it's different bile. There's a lot of other factors and the enterohepatic circulation and how the bile acids are recycled. It, it could be, there's a lot of different things that play a role there too. So I'm not really sure. Here's one final mm-hmm. one is, have you seen anything with GI issues as it relates to geography or ethnicity? And and geography is very hard. Like, let's give the caveat because we start to talk, geography and different cultures have such different diets that can be a factor in itself. But have you seen anything from either geography or ethnicity where you see higher instances of GI issues across the board or specific ones where one country people have depth in one versus another? Okay, so first of all, I would say my Hispanic population when I used to be, um, when I was practicing conventional GI, okay, a lot have made, a lot of them have irritable bowel syndrome and have issues with, and I really feel like that stems from dysbiosis and their lifestyle and their diet and what they're feeding themselves for sure. And that was very pervasive. And, and a lot of Hispanic patients will tell you they have GI issues. You know, very, very common. But what's even more interesting is my European patients. Okay, this is fascinating. So here I have all of these Polish patients, all of these patients from France that whatever, when I was in my conventional GI practice, okay? And they would have significant issues with chronic diarrhea or chronic constipation or irritable bowel syndrome, many of these functional bowel disorders, okay? And it all started when they moved here. The vast majority, it started when they moved here. Okay, but you want to hear the kicker? When they go home and they go back to Poland or they go back to France or they go back to wherever they're going, their symptoms are fine. They can eat whatever they want. They don't have to limit what they want. They feel great. They feel great. And I believe that one of the major drivers is glyphosate. And the Roundup, right? Like the 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 Roundup, and and because many European, I don't know if you're Europe as a whole or the EU as a whole or just specific nations, but they out it's outlawed. They don't they it's not allowed. They're not allowed to put Roundup in the wheat. Okay, so therefore the patients can tolerate it because you're removing the inciting factor that's likely the stimulus for a lot of their symptoms. You know, so I always found that fascinating, just fascinating. And then I started doing a much deeper dive into farming techniques, right? And how they process foods in Europe or even New Zealand, Australia, so on and so forth. And it's just so different than how we do it here in a lot of ways, you know? Um, And that's why, I mean, really supporting regenerative farms, right? And these farms that have, you know, from the minute the calves or the sheep are born. They're just pasture-raised. They're out, they're grazing. They're just eating from the earth and the grass, right? Because when we eat them, we're eating what they have in them that's being passed on to us. So we want to make sure that they're, you know, full of nutrients and amazing compounds and vitamins that we need that we're not getting because everything is so processed and everything's factory farmed and the soil is nutritionally depleted and so on and so forth. So I really am such a big 
supporter and believer in regenerative farms. And if we could get back to that, that would be super helpful. And I think people's guts would feel a lot better. <laughs> we have a lot less GI problems and symptoms. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating deep dive to go down the path. And I wonder if in continents like, like the EU, a lot of it has to do also with maybe the food procurement where okay. people are very used to their, their habit is to walk to whatever small market. Let's make an assumption somebody's in a city where there's, um, things are, sold in like that is the eggplant vendor it's i mean that's probably a little bit hyperbolic but in general there are all of these like one off that person only sells x y or z and and so the quality of that food will differ that food is not made to be shelf stable so even in some of the supermarkets here right there's the bakery in the store but that bread it's still made fresh every day and it's made to have some shelf stability because that's what you have to do like you have to do that in europe it is basically throw the three ingredients together for bread you're gonna throw your flour some eggs some water it's a little bit of salt so pure it's so bake it. yeah yeah so and so i wonder how much of it also has to do with that where i think a lot has to do with that i think a lot has to do with that as well and it's funny because a lot of my patients from Europe too, like especially my Polish, I had such a large Polish population from because of where I was geographically in Connecticut, there's a big population near there. And they would tell me how, you know, they had farms in their backyard. Like they literally had small farms or sm I mean, small gar like gardens where they grew so much of their own food, you know, and like you just touched on it in America. I mean, how many days or weeks do you think these you know, different fruits and vegetables are sitting on these trucks coming across the country to us or, you know, down south, up north and so on and so forth. And it loses so much of the nutrient content. You know, we do a little bit of urban farming at my house. I have a tower garden. And even my kids say to me over the summer when I, you know, pick when I give make a salad from all of the fresh greens and herbs that I grow on the garden, that like this tastes amazing. It tastes so different. I'm like, that's because it's chock full of all these amazing nutrients and compounds that are likely not your there. There's just so much of that content is being lost, right? From, you know, what, what we're talking about and urbanization in general. So, yeah, that, I mean, that is such a common thing is growing the food in different parts of Europe. It's mm -hmm. just, it is part of what you do. And here, I think it is it is a practice that is becoming more common in, we'll say, in North America in general. But because of seasonality, because of interest, because of population density, all of these things, you lose the apple tree in the yard where you're picking all the apples and they don't get sprayed with the wax and all the, um, all the pesticides, all the things that make them shelf stable, which make apples last for, I can't remember the exact number of years, but there are the common fruit such as apples or even um, vegetables like potatoes where they're around for years sitting in different silos, right? Or warehouses at a cool temperature. And people say, what? That apple or that potato is a year and a half or two years old. And it just is because the harvest is made. The only way that we can get this consistent food production and delivery as far as the supply chain goes, uh, stuff doesn't magically appear on the shelves. There has to be a system. And and if we are growing our own food, it is a lot more difficult, but it does taste better. It is more pure. It is better for us. So are there any takeaways as far as 
underlying advice. So somebody wants to get in front of a GI issue that they have that they can mitigate with certain things. What are some of the recommended takeaways that you have for people aside from the natural things like get more sleep, get more right. exercise? You know, everyone thinks is, oh, you it's just a fad. And that, but I do have a, many of my patients stop gluten and dairy. You know, both of them are extremely inflammatory, extremely damaging to the gut microbiome. Um, and so when many people just take those two things out, I can't even tell you how much better they feel, right? Um, so that in and of itself is a big deal, you know? And I always say it's, it doesn't have to be forever. You have to heal. Like the diet that heals and the diet that seals, right? Like it's not, you know, eventually I always tell patients that they can go back to like an 80-20 rule unless it's something, unless they really have an underlying condition that really you know, predisposes them to really not be on these two, you know, these particular things. But I always say to try that first because it does make a huge difference for a lot of people because that is driving a lot of their symptoms. Okay. Um, the other thing is, is hydration. You know, people are so underhydrated um, and drinking a lot more water is super duper important. And I always tell people to have a big tall glass of lemon water because the lemon water um, really helps the distal colon become more um, basic. And when that happens, the bad bacteria don't like that environment. They prefer a much more acidic environment. So um, that's helpful too. And I do, I will say, we are in our clinic, we are so big into getting people to sleep. And getting people into deep sleep because our circadian rhythms are timed with our gut microbiome circadian rhythms. They really have this bi-directional pathway and really influence each other in a, in, in a lot of ways. And when most of us don't sleep, most there's uh, there is an insomnia epidemic as well, and people don't get into deep sleep either. And when that happens, it really does a lot of damage to the gut microbiome. We our vagal tone goes down and the vagus nerve is so super important in that whole gut-brain connection and in controlling motility and so on and so forth. And also when you don't sleep, guess what? You want to eat crap. You want to eat all the sugar and all the chocolate and all the bad stuff like all the time because you're so tired and you're so run down. So it does feed, it's like a feed forward cycle. You know, and then I will bring up that my patients that don't sleep, they we we do use continuous glucose monitors on a vast majority of our patients. And I can't tell you how many women that think they're so healthy and whatever, their their glucoses are through the roof during the night. And that's because cortisol and cortisol is married to glucose and their court, you know, so they're so stressed and they're not sleeping. And that, so it's so fascinating, you know, what we learn from these devices, from these medical devices and the impact on our, you know, I, I call it like the gut metabolic. Um, it's like a triangle. It's like gut metabolic uh, hormone, you know, this, this triangle, especially like in a lot of our middle-aged females. And it's fascinating what you can learn, you know, from, you know, this little bit of information and the changes you can make based on that. Yeah, it's I mean, it's exactly what you touched on earlier in the podcast, which was the idea of the importance of monitoring multiple analytes. You take anything in isolation, you could have your HDL and LDL look great, but mm -hmm. you've got highly elevated insulin levels mm -hmm. or highly, right? 
right? Somebody is insulin resistant. There are all of these factors. So looking at anything in isolation, we always talk about glucose is super important and so is insulin. And so, so are all these markers, but in isolation, they are a single marker. And especially if we're looking at point in time, which is non-continuous monitoring, um, those can cause challenges where we make decisions and we extrapolate that in perpetuity into the future. And we say, there's my point in time, I'm either healthy or I'm unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, having the holistic view, looking at root cause, it's so important to see how it all is interconnected. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's exciting. And it's, a, it's a, such a great way to take care of patients and heal patients. Like when we practice conventional medicine, it's, you know, it really is mic medicine. We're seeing 30 patients. It's a revolving door of people coming in and out. We can't spend the time that we need. We can't be investigative. We can't be that, you know, sort of stealth detective and really figuring out what's going on. And it just becomes a pill for every ill and you're just band-aiding the problem. And for me, that was just not why I became a doctor. And I just... And I think that's the reason why a lot of doctors get burnt out and, you know, leave medicine or are depressed and why the suicide rate is so high, unfortunately, because it's not rewarding to practice medicine that way. It's not. And this is such a much more rewarding way. And it's such a great way to help people. Well, thank you for all the work you are doing in spreading awareness about it. Where is the best place for people to find you? So... They can go to our website, which is terrainhealth, all one word, dot org, or I am on Instagram at Dr. Robin, and then it's Dr. Robin too on Facebook. Go Terrain Health as well is the practices handle on Instagram and Facebook as well. <laughs>